Well, I hope you've enjoyed um, the last two weeks as much as I have. I hope you've been touched uh, and impacted by the last two weeks as much as I have. I've enjoyed being able to sit back and just absorb the teaching of two um, amazing communicators who have invited us into the space of considering what it might mean that seeing is loving. That if, if this is really the central proposition we've been exploring this whole series, that if we could really see people for who they truly are, that you know, the image of God in us would have no choice but to be compelled to love them. And in effect, what we've been exploring throughout this series is are the ways in which or the reasons for which that doesn't happen sometimes in our life. The, the things that block our ability to see and therefore to love the people around us. And Tim started talking about this two weeks ago. I uh, sort of laid the groundwork for the series saying that sometimes we don't love people just because we actually don't see them. We, we legitimately, we genuinely just have for whatever reason through busyness or privilege or whatever the reason might be, we've actually blocked them from our field of view. There are just some people who have lived in our blind spot. You know, uh, he said folks in our community would say, I didn't even realize there were homeless people in St. Catharines or whatever the case. We just don't even notice. Or Tim said one of the problems when we do see is that we don't see people fully. Remember, you had that slide about, of the iceberg. That uh, we, what we do, instead of being able to see everything that's real and true about a person's life and about their story, we don't see the stuff beneath the surface. We just see the 10% that's on the surface. And, and then what we do is we make a snap judgment about what we think based on the 10% that we can see. Rather than taking the time to fully appreciate and understand the 90% of the person's story that exists below the surface. And if we could see their whole story, if we could see their whole selves, we would, our impulse would be to love them. Uh, he said we don't see clearly that there's issues in us, things like fear, that block our ability to see the people around us for who they are, that interrupt our vision. And, and when we don't see someone clearly, we won't love them for who they are truly are. Last week, Allison picked up on exactly the same themes and talked about this whole uh, reality through the, a global grid, that we, there are times when we just choose not to see the poverty and the suffering and the injustice that goes on in the world around us all the time. There are times when we do see, but we don't see fully. We don't see ourselves fully, our own privilege, our own standing, or our own um, value grid or whatever. We, we don't see ourselves fully or we don't see other people. We don't see the global poor fully. We don't see them as fully equal to us in a way that would invite us to stand in solidarity with them. She challenged us to choose to see clearly, which for Allison meant to see God in the midst of the poor, to see God on the move among the poor, to see the unlimited potential of the church, to see God's kingdom coming in the world, at least this part of the kingdom coming in the world on earth as it is in heaven, and to just to see what God is doing. In effect, really what we have been talking about this entire time are really, is really the, the central command of Jesus, the central 
thing that Jesus says defines the life of following him. We've read these verses dozens of times, but in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, Jesus replied to the question, what is the most important commandment? And he said, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it, and this is what we've been talking about. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. Jesus is really the the sum total of what it means to live a life of following him is to love with everything you have, to love the God who reveals himself in Jesus Christ, and then to love everybody else as much as you love yourself. Built into Jesus' definition of what love is, is this idea that love is bestowing on other people the same dignity and value and worth that I bestow myself, treating other people with the same kind of esteem with which I esteem myself. And this is the breakdown of seeing and loving that we want to talk about this morning. If love is bestowing on somebody else the dignity and worth that I bestow on myself, what does it do to my ability to love when I cannot bestow dignity and worth on myself? I think we have as much problem seeing ourselves as we do seeing anyone else in a way that inhibits us from loving ourselves. See, part of the problem is we, we, do, see each other, we do see ourselves fully. See, we also have a 90% of the story that's below the surface that's often filled with brokenness and sin and just the ick of life experience and whatever stuff that we are not proud of that we on purpose keep below the surface. And the challenge is that we actually do know that whole story. We see ourselves fully, but we don't see ourselves clearly. We allow that ick, the brokenness beneath the surface, to shape how we view ourselves, to shape how we understand who we think that we are in a way that distorts our sense of ourselves. This came through really um, powerfully to me a couple years ago in a a video segment that was put together by the Dove uh, Company that I thought really, really spoke to this reality of how we see ourselves. Uh, Check out this video. It's powerful, hey? That we don't see ourselves clearly. We see ourselves in a distorted way that reflects our own judgments on ourselves based primarily on the 90% of the ick and brokenness that lives beneath the surface of our lives. And our inability to see ourselves for who we really are affects our ability to love ourselves for who we really are. And that interrupts our ability to love everybody else for who they are. And this isn't, I'm not saying this as some sort of psychological mumbo jumbo. We're talking about this because this is an issue that God wants to address in our lives. It's a story in Luke chapter 19. The story of a man by the name of Zacchaeus who lived in the town of Jericho. He was an exceptionally 
a wealthy man who had heard rumors that Jesus was in town and, and Zacchaeus was really interested in catching a glimpse of this um, rabbi who had captured the imagination of so much of the country. But Zacchaeus had a little problem. See, Zacchaeus was a tiny little guy. And every time he had gotten close to Jesus, every time he had sort of seen Jesus coming, he was actually unable to see over the crowds, to see beyond the the huddled masses that gathered around Jesus all the time. He wasn't able to catch a glimpse of him. And so one day, Luke 19 says, Zacchaeus hatched a plan. He ran ahead to where he could see that Jesus was heading, and and he climbed up into a fig tree, And he perched himself in the branches that would give him a vantage point where he could look over top of everybody's head and he could could catch a glimpse of this incredible uh, rabbi that was touring the town of Jericho. And it says in Luke chapter 19 verse 5 that Zacchaeus trying to catch a glimpse of Jesus actually found the tables reversed and it was Jesus who caught a glimpse of Zacchaeus. It says in verse 5, when Jesus reached the spot, He looked up and he saw him there in the tree and he said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. And so Zacchaeus came down at once and he welcomed Jesus gladly into his house. Here's Zacchaeus. He's perched up in the tree trying to catch a glimpse of Jesus. And as Jesus comes by, Jesus sees Zacchaeus up in the tree and he calls Zacchaeus by his name. I don't know how Jesus knew that it was Zacchaeus up in the tree. Maybe they'd met before. Maybe Jesus had asked around of who the funny guy was up in the tree. Maybe God had given Jesus supernatural knowledge about who it was that was perched in the tree. But somehow Jesus sees this man in the tree and he knows everything about who this guy is. He calls him by name. He basically sees Zacchaeus and he says, I know you. Which is a bit of a problem for Zacchaeus. Because Zacchaeus, the story tells us, is the chief tax collector in that part of Israel. We've talked about tax collectors before. They collected the toll and the duty and the customs on all the goods and people who were coming in and out of the country. They were border patrol just like we have in our border with the United States. Um, Except these guys collected custom and duty not according to any sort of set rate. They collected custom and duty according to what they thought they could get out of the person who was crossing the border. They would um, ask for exorbitant amounts of money and then pass on a fraction of that to the government and put the, the rest of it in their pocket. They were crooked and dirty. Well, it wasn't just that they were crooked and, and dirty. It's that they were uh, spiritually unclean. Everybody in Israel considered the toll collectors to be unfit for the presence of God because they spent all of their day interacting primarily with Gentiles who were considered to be God's enemies. They were spiritually unfit for the presence of God and so guilty by association, the, the toll collectors who dealt with them were unfit for the presence of God. But it wasn't just the Gentiles, it was their money that they handled all day, every day. It was, it was Roman money. And every Roman coin had a picture of the Roman Caesar. And the Roman Caesar was considered to be a Roman god, which meant that every coin that they handled was an idol to a Roman god. They were sinning, breaking 
two of the Ten Commandments just by handling the money. They were sinners, not just because of their own corruption, but because of their idolatry. But it wasn't even just that they were sinners, it's that they were traitors. They were traitors against God's people. They would collect this coin, hand it to the Roman government. The government would use the money to pay the soldiers that were oppressing God's people. They were working for the enemy. They were a Benedict Arnold, a traitor in the ranks. But they weren't just a traitor against Israel. Israel were God's people. Rome was God's enemy. Therefore, in working for Rome, they were enemies with God. The crowds hated the toll collectors. And Zacchaeus was the boss of all of them. In verse 7, it said, when, when all the people saw this, that Jesus was going to the Zacchaeus house, they began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner sneeringly, derisively. This is the opinion that Zacchaeus had absorbed every day of his professional career. That he was corrupt and disgusting and unfit for the presence of God, an enemy of God's people and an enemy of God. This was a part of the 90% of the brokenness and ick that lived beneath the surface of Zacchaeus' life. Zacchaeus's life. But here's this moment where Jesus is walking down the street and Jesus catches a glimpse of Zacchaeus and he sees him. He sees him fully and he sees him clearly. He knows exactly who Zacchaeus is. And yet Jesus chooses to love him. <clears throat> Excuse me. He says, Zacchaeus, I want to eat with you today. Eating together in the ancient world was a sign of solidarity. It was a sign of friendship. It was a sign of acceptance and forgiveness and trust. It was a way of saying, I'm a part of you and you are a part of me. You're my tribe and I am your tribe. That we are one, united together in relationship with each other. It was a statement of love and acceptance. And friendship. And here's this moment in Zacchaeus' life where he has this encounter with Jesus in which Jesus sees Zacchaeus. He sees him fully and he sees him clearly and he loves him in response. And this moment changes everything about Zacchaeus. In verse 8 it says, Zacchaeus stood up and he said to the Lord, look Lord. Here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay him back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. He says, Zacchaeus, you are part of God's people. You are a friend of God, which is what the Bible calls Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus says, this is exactly what I came to do, to see people fully and clearly for who they are, to see even the 90% of the ick and the brokenness and the sin that exists beneath the surface of their lives and to love them anyway in a way that's going to transform their lives. And Zacchaeus was transformed. He was transformed in his ability to see himself. 
right? Suddenly Zacchaeus' life looked completely different. He was reimagining his future. He was no longer on this treadmill of greed and, and wealth and accumulation. Now he wanted his life to be about generosity and compassion. It changed the way he saw the people around him. Up until that moment, the people around Zacchaeus, especially the poor, had, he had seen only as individuals fit for exploitation. People from whom he would take what did not rightfully belong to him in order to increase his own wealth on the backs of the poor. So that the gap between the rich and the poor would continue to grow. But now Zacchaeus says, no, 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 with those people, he says, I want to make restitution. I'm going to pay them back four times what I've taken. Zacchaeus, in response to Jesus seeing him and loving him, Zacchaeus withdraws himself from this unjust, oppressive economic system where the rich get richer on the backs of the poor. He withdraws entirely from the system. Zacchaeus um, finds himself now um, angling his life towards being a force for justice in the community, saying, I'm going to give half of my possessions to the poor, which, by the way, was twice as much as Jews were legally allowed to to liquidate and to give to the poor for all sorts of reasons. But Zacchaeus was doing twice as much as he was legally allowed to do. See, this is the thing. This is a man who had every reason in the world given the 90% of the ick and brokenness and sin that was beneath the surface of his life, had every reason in the world to struggle with who he was, to feel unloved in his relationships with the people around him, and to assume that he was unloved by God himself. And he had an encounter with Jesus in which Jesus saw him for who he was, loved him entirely in a way that transformed not only his life, but transformed his ability to see himself and to love the people around him, to see and love those God had brought into his life. And that's the end invitation of Jesus for each one of us because honestly Zacchaeus is every single one of us me and you and all of us because the Bible is clear that one of the one of the very first consequences that sin has in our lives is to um, break our relationship with ourselves. you, you see this uh, in Genesis chapter 3 Genesis chapter 3 is the third chapter of the whole Bible, it's a case study in what sin does to the lives of people. And, and it says in Genesis 3, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree that God told her not to eat was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of the fruit God told her not to eat and she ate it. And she also gave some of, to her husband who was with her and he ate it. They had chosen to leave their relationship with God behind, to go their own way in life. And it says, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The first consequence of sin and brokenness in the lives of Adam and Eve was to realize was to experience a sense of shame with respect to who they were. In the previous chapter, it says that the two of them were naked and unashamed. So when it says that they realized they were naked and they began to cover themselves up, it's the biblical writer's way of saying that the consequence of sin in people's lives is a sense of shame and a sense of humiliation about who you are and this instinctive need to try and protect yourself and your vulnerability from other people. 
We experience brokenness in our relationship with ourselves. An inability to love ourselves fully. It's part of the consequence of sin. Dr. Robert McGee is a psychologist who wrote a book called The Search for Significance. And Robert McGee says that most of us spend most of our lives and and most of what motivates most of our behavior is driven towards trying to overcome this sense of shame about who we are. This sense of brokenness that we experience in our relationship with ourselves. He calls it the search for significance. He says some people are searching for significance uh, through the avenue of performance and perfectionism. The core belief is that if I can just achieve a certain measure of tangible success, then I will be a human being that is worthwhile. These are the folks who are always giving you their resume, telling you what they've just accomplished. I think, I swear that 75% of every Facebook post I've ever seen is this kind of post. Of people saying, hey, this is what I've accomplished. Would somebody please affirm me? As a human being. This is the motivation of Pinterest. Right? That I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay out this incredible, unattainable grid of what it looks like to be a, a super parent or whatever it is. And I'm going to try and attain this level of parenting success or marital success or whatever it happens to be. Fashion success or whatever it happens to be. I'm going to show the world that I'm worth it by my level of achievement in whatever it is that is meaningful to me. Maybe then I'll be a worthwhile person. Other people don't go that route. They go the route of people-pleasing. They become addicted to approval. This is what God has been rescuing me from in the last number of years. That they just feel like if certain other people will affirm me as a human being, then maybe I really am worthwhile as a person. So these are the people who are terrified of conflict. They don't want anybody to be upset with them ever because that might reinforce the suspicion that I'm really a failure after all. These are people who say yes to everybody and everything. They have no sense of boundaries. Their only motivation is to keep everybody around them happy so that they can feel worthwhile as a human being. There's a third category, McGee says, of people who resort to blame. They... They shift blame from themselves to other people. The reason I might experience failure in my life, the reason I might not be everything that I want to be is not my fault, it's your fault. And it's not just blame. This is people who are judgmental and critical and cynical, people who are sarcastic and cut other people down and make jokes at somebody else's expense. These are people who can't admit that they're wrong. They're people who will never apologize to anybody else because the core belief is if I can demonstrate my superiority to everybody else, then maybe I will be worthwhile as a human being. I promise you, The most critical, judgmental person you know is harder on themselves than they are on anybody they've ever been in relationship with. It is the cry of somebody who feels terrible about who they are. The fourth strategy, McGee says, is the strategy of shame. It's just giving up on yourself before anybody else can give up on you. It's, it's being disappointed with yourself so that you'll never be disappointed by what a disappointment you are to other people. It's the belief that says, I'm worthless, I'm hopeless, I don't deserve joy, I don't deserve happiness, I don't deserve peace, and I will never change. I've given up on me. 
McGee says the tragedy of all of these strategies of trying to cope with this sense of brokenness with how I perceive myself that comes from the 90% of the ick that lies beneath the surface of our life is that they are all so entirely unnecessary because of the way God has loved us in the person of Jesus Christ. McGee says this, he says, to the person who is trying to perform, trying to achieve success, trying to be a, a perfectionist, the person who is afraid that any sign of imperfection in their life will confirm their suspicion that they're a failure that God would want to say this to them in Psalm 103. He says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. McGee says, you don't have to worry about being imperfect. Jesus has already seen you for who you are. He knows you're imperfect and he's already forgiven you for all your imperfection. He's taken all of your imperfection and he's separated it from you as far as the east is from the west. God sees you and in your imperfection and because his love for you is as high as the east is from the west. He doesn't care. He's already forgiven you for being imperfect. So stop trying to be perfect. McGee says for those who are people pleasers, who live with this fear that somebody else's disapproval is going to invalidate them as a human being, he says, I would want you to hear the words of Romans chapter 8 where Paul says, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The single greatest fear of the people pleaser is that I'm going to do something that is going to cause somebody to cut off their love for me. And Paul says, you don't have to worry because God loves you and there's nothing that you can do to cut off God's love for you. You don't have to worry about whether or not people love you or like you or accept you or embrace you because God loves you and likes you and accepts you and embraces you and there's nothing that you're ever going to do that's ever going to change that. He is already pleased with you. He says for those who try and use the the mechanisms of blame to set themselves free from, from this feeling awful about themselves. McGee says it's all wasted effort. You don't have to shift your blame onto somebody else because Jesus has already taken all of your blame and he carried it all the way to the cross and he left it there. In 1 John 4 it says this is how God showed his love for us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son, listen to this, as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We ought to love each other in exactly the way that God has loved us. You don't have to take the blame that risks your sense of yourself and put it on somebody else. Jesus has already taken the blame. He's taken your blame. Gladly, willingly, voluntarily, excitedly, joyfully, he took your blame on himself and carried it to the cross. And it doesn't exist. For those who would choose the avenue of shame. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Because shame says, 
I'm worthless, I'm broken, and I can never change. This is what Paul says. So from now on, he says, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. If you're headspace, if in your spirit you live in a space of shame that says I'm broken and worthless and I will never change, what Paul says to you is guess what? If you put your faith in Jesus, he's already changed you. You're not the person you used to be. You're not the person you're afraid you are. He has made you brand new. Listen, friends. Jesus has seen you fully and clearly for exactly who you are. He sees you and he loves you. He loves you in a way that he wants to fill in the breach in your own love for yourself and fill that gap with his love for you. And I feel like this morning there's a number of us who need to just sit in this space. And I want to invite the band to come back to the stage now in all of our locations. I want to invite the band to come back because I want us to have an experience now. I want us to sit together in this space of being open and willing to embrace the love of a God who has seen us for who we are and who loves us no matter what. As the band uh, begins to play, someone from your community is going to get up and read a, a script that we wrote. But it's a script that we feel captures the heart of God for every single one of us. And as this thing is being read, I want you to sit quietly in your place. Close your eyes if it helps you um, absorb what is being said over you in these next few minutes. But I want you to sit in this space and I want you to absorb what is being said as the words of God, as a love letter from the God who sees you and who loves you no matter what. Let's let God speak his love into the depths of our spirit this morning.